0: Well, uh, school's about ready to start up. We've got a bunch of college students now and baiting us, um, they're starting to come in from other places and, uh. Fall is approaching, and I wish it'd get here a little quicker, and so it'd cool down. But uh, it's been a pretty mild summer, so we don't really have much to complain about. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll get into our second question and answer sermon for the this year. Every uh, if you are uh, visiting every year, we usually spend a couple Sundays at the end of August to answer Bible questions that people have submitted the weeks before that. And so uh, this morning we're going to answer a few more questions. And so let's pray and. Ask the lord to bless our time together father we come before you as sinners in need of constant grace and we're thankful that we have it in christ jesus we're thankful that you have granted us your precious and magnificent promises and we're thankful that you your word gives us everything pertaining to life and godliness and equips us for every good work that we have the more sure word, more sure than experience that we do well to pay attention to. As a light shining in a dark place. And father, we just asked this morning as we come to look at a variety of subjects that we would marvel at the breadth and depth and father, the goodness of you in giving us your word, father, that we have so many um, Great things there, encouragement, promises, rebukes, just help and wisdom for life. But most importantly, the Lord Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected for sinners so that all through faith in him could receive the free gift of eternal life. Father, we pray for those back east who have been rocked by an earthquake, which they aren't used to. And now are being hammered by a, a great hurricane. And Father, we know that it is an act of God that for some good reason you have brought these things to the East Coast to glorify your name, to bring sinners to repentance. May they all see the mortality of life, the uncertainty of life. May they think about you and may you raise up believers that they might witness to them, that people might get saved through the trial they are now going through there. And Father, in all of this, we ask that you would be glorified and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you were here last week, uh, we answered a variety of questions. The last one, which was kind of one of those mean questions that people ask, explain the difference between Calvinism and hyper-Calvinism and predestination and double predestination. That's kind of a mean question because uh, uh, those are very complex issues. So we answered a few questions and then I kind of gave you a drink with the fire hose and uh and some of you left gagging a bit and so this morning we're going to review a little bit what we learned last time and then finish up with the two part question just uh so some of you if you weren't here last week can kind of get caught up you might want to listen to last week's too to kind of get the full meal deal but uh we were talking about first John Calvin one of the early reformers in Geneva, who preached through almost every text of the Bible, wrote many books, and most significantly, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, which are really his, his most famous work. Uh, just so you know, um, many who call themselves Calvinists are not Calvinists. Uh, they don't believe and or teach what Calvin taught completely. Uh, a lot of them are hybrid Calvinists, uh, so to speak. And we discussed that some of the key factors that gave rise to hyper Calvinism is first and foremost, um, uh, Beza. Beza is uh, was a great theologian who took over teaching theology for Calvin after Calvin died in Geneva. So Beza was kind of Calvin's uh, uh, follower who then taught Students who came to Geneva, the theology that Calvin taught, except in one critical way, he rearranged the order of the material as he taught it. Uh, this is common uh, still today, and I've done it myself, that a lot of times in order to kind of lay out theology, you do it in a chronological way. So you start in eternity past, you start with uh, before the foundation of the world, the decrees of God, predestination, election, cre- and then you get into creation and all the things the Bible talks about in a chronological sequence, which works fine chronologically. Uh, the problem is, is if you teach theology that way, it it puts an emphasis on the sovereignty of God and election and predestination to the neglect a lot of times of the responsibility of man. The predestination and election become kind of the point of the spear or the hub of your theology. And so everything you're learning goes through the you're always thinking of predestination and kind of sifting it through in that way. And that is how Beza differed from John Calvin in the way he taught theology. Uh, so really, uh, those who overemphasize predestination, election, the sovereignty of God are really not Calvinists, but they're Bezaites. Um, uh, Calvin, what he did is talked about God the Creator and God the Redeemer and how to receive salvation through faith in Christ. And at the very end of the first three books, which which discuss the gospel, at the very end he talks about predestination and election, uh, making the gospel the center of Calvin's theology and the point of the spear of his theology. And so what, that was really the first thing that kind of made a shift. Now, that didn't create hyper-Calvinists right off the bat. I just want you to understand some of the factors that led to it. The second major factor is the five points of Calvinism, which did not come from John Calvin, ironically. Uh, what happened was, is some 54 years after Calvin died, some of the followers of Beza... Um, who followed Calvin, uh, were teaching what Beza and Calvin taught. And some followers of Calvin's theological sparring partner, Jacobus Arminius, um, had problems with what the followers of Calvin slash Beza were teaching. And so they wrote a document called the Remonstrance to say we have problems with these issues. Those issues boiled down to five issues. Then there was a theological conclave where they got together, the synod at the city of Dort, where they discussed these issues. The followers of Calvin Beza discussed them against the followers of Jacobus Arminius. And those five points then later became known as the five points of Calvinism. But Calvin never had a five-point system. They were actually, the five points of Calvinism are actually the five points of the opponents of Calvin, not Calvin himself. However, because the five points came to light as kind of a key clash at that time, they kind of became... Uh, a measuring rod to see how reformed you were and how much you matched up to what Calvin taught, although Calvin didn't teach a five-point system. And though he taught those five points, he didn't teach them in the order and or uh, exclusively. They were just issue. So what has happened is, is, you know, you'll have people come up to you saying, you know, are you a four pointer or a five pointer or things like that? uh, Because that kind of allows them to pigeonhole you later on. Somebody then took the five points and put the acronym TULIP on there uh, to each of the letters representing one of the kind of points of contention that the followers of Jacobus Arminius had against the followers of Beza and Calvin at the Synod of Dort. And so that gives you a little bit of understanding of how the five points um, came into being. Uh, Calvin would have been appalled to hear somebody call themselves a Calvinist. Uh, we are either Christians saved by grace through faith and the person and work of Jesus Christ or not. Christ uh, would be honored. Calvin would be honored if we called ourselves Christians or saints or followers of Christ or Christ's disciples. Uh, but not Calvinists. To illustrate that the followers of Calvin did not always teach what Calvin taught, we looked at one of the letters in the tulip scheme, the atonement. Uh, I gave a whole bunch of quotes where Calvin uh, affirms that Christ died for each, every, Person, The elect and non-elect. There was a sense in which his atonement was for all men. I read multiple quotes where Calvin says that. But if you were to ask your average Calvinist if that's what Calvin taught, they would say, no, absolutely not. That's because they haven't even read Calvin. They've just latched on to those who call themselves Calvinists but who are not. If someone asked me if I believe in the five points of Calvinism... uh, which are not his. Of course I don't. Um, but if they ask me, do you believe in the five points of Calvinism? I always have to stop and say, well, what, what do you mean? Do you mean what Calvin actually taught or what the followers of Calvinist, Calvin said he taught or what Beza taught? I mean, what are you talking about? And a lot of times they can't even answer the question because they don't know. You know, if you're talking about what Calvin taught, yeah. If you're talking about what Bayes' emphasis on predestined election and the sovereignty of God to the neglect of man's responsibility, no. Uh, so, you know, you kind of have to just get away. I would recommend you getting away from the points and all of that. And thus we learned that hyper-Calvinism, hyper Calvinist might say things like these. This is not true of all of them. And by the way, you can be a five-point Calvinist and not a hyper-Calvinist, and you can be a hyper-Calvinist and not a five-pointer. And so there's not a specific cubbyhole you can put everybody in. But a hyper-Calvinist might say something like this. Missions and evangelism are unnecessary, as God is sovereign in salvation and will end up saving whoever he wishes. Or uh, the hyper-Calvinist might say, why pray if God is sovereign? I mean, his decree is fixed and God is going to do what he wants to do out of a divine fatalism. The hyper-Calvinist might say that you should never tell unbelievers that Christ died for them because Christ died for the elect and the elect only. And since we don't know who the elect are, it would be wrong to tell a group of people who don't know Christ that Christ died for them because surely some of them he did not die for. Therefore, we must change the gospel message to really say that Christ died for sinners, but not for you specifically. For the hyper-Calvinist might say that God doesn't love everyone. He only loves the elect. God created the non-elect to destroy them. This brings us to the second part of the question, the difference between predestination and double predestination. Not everyone who believes in double predestination is a hyper-Calvinist or a five-point Calvinist, but most hyper-Calvinists are five-point Calvinists as a general rule. First, single predestination is clearly taught in the Bible. All you have to do is read your Bible and you come upon passages that say we've been predestined. For instance, Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 5 says, Just as He, the Father, chose us in Him, that is Christ, but for the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Here is described God choosing us and God predestinating us. You say, well, what's the difference? Predestination emphasizes God's plan to bring about the salvation of those he has chosen before the foundation of the world. Choosing is God's sovereign choice of whom he chooses to save. So one is God picking who he will save. The other emphasizes the plan to bring about their salvation. But both are very closely related. To deny predestination, uh, you have to do one of two things. Either deny the Bible which plainly teaches it, or try to create a false definition that really is not predestination at all. Most people try to define it this way because they don't understand how predestination works or why would God predestine some and not others, etc., etc. And they say, well, what it means is God, because he knows everything, looks into the future. He sees who is going to choose him, and then in response, he chooses them. That is not predestination. Uh, men on their own never choose God. Paul makes that clear. There are none who seek after God, not even one. John says, the wicked do not come to the light lest their deeds should be exposed. So those who don't know Christ on their own never seek God. It is only when God by his grace draws them, uh, opens their heart, illumines them, innates them with the Holy Spirit, gives them the grace to believe that they are saved, and they respond to God seeking them. Because a Apart from God seeking them, they don't seek God. So predestination is for believers. It's a message for believers. It's not a message that you should use to try and figure out how you should preach the gospel. It's not a message for you to go talk to unbelievers about. It's just given as an encouragement to believers. It's not a tool to be whacking people over the head because their theology isn't all strained through the sieve of predestination and election. So, in summary, single predestination says salvation is all because of God's grace and damnation to hell is all because of man's willful sin. So, that's single predestination. Double predestination goes one step further and says that God not only predestines the salvation of the elect, but he predestines the damnation of the non elect In other words, God creates people for the purpose of destroying them in hell for eternity. The Bible does not teach this. Key texts often referred to are Paul's statement in Romans 9 verses 21 through 22 where he says, Or does not the potter... Have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honor, honorable uses, and another for common uses. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? They argue that this text teaches that God creates sinners for the purpose of destroying them. They see God, the potter, creating the sinner, the vessel of dishonor, for destruction, They point also to Peter's statement in first Peter, chapter two, eight, where speaking of unbelievers and their rejection of Christ says that Jesus is a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom. They were also appointed. The NASB adds the word doom. It's not actually in the text. It's to this they were appointed and they put doom in there because obviously the text is talking about destruction, doom. So the person who believes in double predestination understands these texts as saying that God created or made the non-elect for the purpose of destroying them. In other words, men do not perish because they are sinful. They perish because they're predestined to perish. Thus, the sovereignty of God is overemphasized and the cause of man's perishing is, is predestination to perish rather than their own willful sin. The argument boils down to this. Listen carefully. Are the wicked appointed to sin so they will be destroyed? Or are the wicked appointed for destruction because they've sinned? The latter is single predestination. The former is double predestination. Salvation is God's fault. Damnation is man's fault. That's what the scriptures teach. So in summary, the Bible teaches men perish because of their sin, not because God didn't elect them. Predestination is not part of the gospel message. Predestination is not to be used as an excuse not to pray or evangelize the lost. Predestination is not a message for those who haven't yet believed. Predestination is an encouragement for those who have already believed hell and judgment are appointed for those who sin and to not believe in Christ um, is to bring upon yourself judgment because of your own sin, not because God predestined you to sin so he could judge you. Now, if you want more on this subject, and again, it's it's huge. Here's some resources you can go to. First, to understand God's sovereignty, you can go to the Psalm 145 Attributes of God series and listen to the four messages on the sovereignty of God, which goes into it in brain-splitting detail. And then if you want more on all the texts that relate to these things, then you can go on our website, look under classes, and look under Basic Bible Doctrine, and there you will find lessons on man, sin, and salvation. You have to study man and sin in order to understand predestination and election. You say, why is that? Listen to the lessons. They are at, if you don't understand man and sin and how sin has affected man, you can not understand why God saves people the way he does. All right, so those uh, are some resources. You can dive into it uh, forever. Uh, there's an endless debate about it, but there you go. Alright, right, for our first new question for this morning, what part of Israel was David in when he said he killed bears and lions? Uh, are there still bears and lions in that area? And, uh, you know, you might wonder when, you know, the Bible says that and if you've ever gone to Israel, I never saw any bears and lions. And so uh, really, the reference is actually to first Samuel 17 uh, verses 34 through 37, where David brings supplies to his brothers from his parents who are kind of all waiting for something to happen because there's this huge giant named Goliath who's taunting the armies of the living God. David sees the giant is so incensed that um, He is taunting the armies of God that he wants to go fight the giant. Saul, the king, says, you can't do that. You're a punk, you know, kid. And uh, he says, no. He says, I am a shepherd of sheep. And when I was out and some lion or bear came and attacked, you know, my sheep, I killed them. And this Philistine will be just like them. And so the question is, where was David when he was killing bears and lions, tending sheep? Well, uh, he was in Israel near the town of Bethlehem, which is where he lived, which is five miles south of Jerusalem. And you might wonder about bears being in Israel or lions because they aren't there today. Well, if you haven't realized this, wild animals often don't coexist well together with people, especially large carnivorous ones. Uh, my brother one time did something when he was a commercial fisherman in Alaska. And while the, the, the captain left the boat, they went to this one island. He needed to talk with somebody else. They docked there and the captain said, stay here. So they got their fly fishing or fishing rods and went up into the hill and went fishing, caught a bunch of fish. And as they were coming down, the captain was there on the dock, hysterical and screaming and pointing. And they looked behind him and they said, warning, this island is infested with grizzly bears. And so they never saw any, but they were there. Well, that's how it used to be, um, even around here. You may not have known that, but, you know, before the 30s, uh, when there was actually water in the L.A. River, um, they used to say that you could, the, the steelhead runs were so massive that you could, it looked like you could walk across the backs of the fish in the L.A. River. That's this dry ditch over here. Um, But because people like to take showers and water their lawns, we killed all the steelhead. And there to eat the steelhead were grizzly bears in Burbank. So um, they aren't here anymore, thankfully, uh, because uh, they eat people too. According to the New Bible Dictionary, quote, the Syrian brown bear may still be found in parts of the Middle East, though no longer within the area of Palestine. The last bear in Palestine was killed in Upper Galilee in the 1930s, but a few lived around Mount Hermon for another 10 years or so. So, up until about the 40s, there were bears fairly close in the land of Israel. Mount Hermon is about 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee, uh, about 10 miles northeast of Southern. Sarea Philippi. Now, you know all about bears. Happy day. Um, Secondly, should a Christian be afraid to die? No, no. A related question. Can uh, you describe uh, kind of what we're going to be experiencing heaven when we do die? Well, first, a Christian should not be afraid to die because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And unless you're afraid of seeing Jesus, which I don't know why you would be, since he is your savior and he gave his life for you and he loved you to death. I mean, um, it would be kind of strange to be scared of that. So uh, what's there to be scared of? You know, I think there's kind of a normal hesitation to die. The pain of death is obviously pining away in some hospital bed or under excruciating pain or, you know, being Tied to the ground and near a red ant hill or something. I mean that would bother you because you know now you're suffering in the whole point of dying, and so that may tempt you to fear. But actually, death itself is really uh, every believer should anticipate it eagerly. It's like yeah, I mean that is like your ultimate hopper pass. Um, you get to get out of your sin cursed body and out of the sin cursed world and into glory with Jesus. I mean triple uh, parks. Uh, you get to go to, the Christian should not fear death. They should just be, yeah, you know, let me at it at God's timing. I would love to go see Jesus. So you don't need to fear death unless you don't know Jesus. Then you should be very scared of death. If you don't know Christ, if you haven't been born again, if you just uh, call yourself a Christian, but you aren't really born again, if you're deceived, uh, if you know you're not saved, you should be terrified of death because death will seal your doom forever. You will end up first in hell and then be cast into the lake of fire, the white throne judgment, and uh, you should be scared. You should be scared under repentance and faith in Christ. And so I would encourage any of you who do not know Christ to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, lest you die and you don't know when you're going to die And uh, perish forever. You don't want that to happen. That is something to be scared about. So, but let's say you do know Christ. What happens? Well, if you remember when we studied the parable, of the rich man and Lazarus, there was a key little goody there that we noted. And I'll just bring it up again because it says when Lazarus died, the angels carried him away to Abraham's bosom. So there was an angelic escort from the time of death, which got him to whatever spiritual realm Abraham was in the place of Sheol, where all believers at that time went. And there was also a place of torment where the rich man went. Now, we don't know because it's the only text like that, but it'd be very well likely that when you die, you will open your eyes in the spiritual realm. There'll be angels there to escort you in the presence of Christ. We know you go to be with Christ because that's what the scriptures say. The Bible indicates that we will have temporary bodies after we die, which are something less than the glorified bodies which we will receive, but something kind of intermediate uh, we won 't be some wisp, some sort of ghost, um, as Hollywood predicts it uh, 2 Corinthians five verses one through five talks about uh, God clothing us or giving us some building uh, which is called a house from him and uh, and so we have kind of are going to be given some sort of uh, the body which is a little different than the glorified body like Jesus had after his resurrection. Now there is some confusion about this because a lot of times when you talk about well what's that body going to be like? Well it's going to be flesh and and you know blood just like, you know, we have and they go aha uh-huh. Didn't didn't Paul say and was it uh 1 Corinthians 15:10 when he's talking about the resurrection that flesh and blood do not inherit the kingdom of God? Yes, and in that context he's talking about Mortal bodies, your mortal body is not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Only a glorified one will inherit the kingdom of God. But remember, when Jesus appeared to his disciples after his death and resurrection into his glorified body, he says, see here, touch me, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So there will be glorified flesh and bones and or blood in heaven, but there won't be mortal flesh and but blood or bones and in heaven, So you will have some sort of body, which is just like yours, uh, but it doesn't get old and wrinkly, it doesn't wear out, it doesn't have aches and pains, you could dig dirt all day and be fine, I think, um, hopefully we won't be digging dirt for all eternity, but if you had to, um, you would, uh, you know, uh, be fine with that, your body wouldn't wear out, and so you're going to receive this great glorified eternal body, which will just be amazing. So you have that kind of, that's your structure you get around in. So what else happens? So not only do you awake, you receive a temporary body awaiting for this glorified body to be given you at the rapture or, or you know, the second coming of Christ, depending on when you come to Christ or, you know, whenever that happens, when you die. Um, those who come to Christ... During the tribulation, we teach that the rapture will happen before the tribulation, that during the tribulation, many more will come to Christ. But those people who survive, believers who survive to the second coming of Christ, which is at the end of the tribulation, um, those people will then enter into the kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, at that time, when Christ comes back, Heaven, in one respect, will come to earth. You see this as you, for instance, if you compare what Matthew says to Jews and what Luke and and Mark, uh, John say you know, partially to Gentiles, or all the way to Gentiles, what you discover is, is a lot of times the Matthew, because he's speaking to Jews, doesn't want to use the term God. So he'll a lot of times use heaven. So he calls it the kingdom of heaven, usually. Other ones call it the kingdom of God. But a lot of times when you look at the parables in relation to these different phrases, and we don't have time to do it, you see that, that this whole like concept of heaven is tied directly sometimes with Jesus ruling and reigning on earth. Uh, So what that tells us is that, in one respect, wherever Jesus is, heaven is. That's where heaven is, where Jesus is ruling and reigning. Of course, during the thousand-year reign of Christ, people will live for a long time. And uh, we know that from, you know, Isaiah, the latter chapter in Isaiah, where it just talks about if somebody dies as a child uh, or dies at 100 years old they'll be thought of as a child. So they're going to start living again because the curse is partially lifted. People will begin to live long times. Well, those mortals then who come to Christ during the tribulation, make it to the end. They enter into the kingdom as mortals and they live for a thousand years. Some of them, you know, they live a long time. They have babies, they have children and not all those children come to Christ. So what are the believers now going to be doing? Then you're going to be ruling and reigning with Christ. You're going to be helping Christ rule and reign over the earth. You're going to be given responsibilities. You're going to be given jobs, tasks to do. You remember the parable of the talent and where they're given certain amounts of money to invest. And at the end, he tells them that in the kingdom, they're going to be put in charge over cities. Which tells us this, how you live your life now as a believer determines the responsibilities God will give you for all eternity. If you neglect and kind of bury your talent, when you get into heaven, you're just going to be given a little dirt to sweep up. But if you use what God has given you in a great way, you'll you'll be given great responsibilities. Not As a means of salvation, but a means of reward for your faithfulness to use what God has given you here on earth. That is one of the reasons why it is so necessary not to waste your life uh, pursuing things of non-eternal value. So what will happen is you will find joy uh, after dying, visiting with angels, holy angels. Visiting with all the saints who have died before you. And during the kingdom of reign of Christ here on earth, you will be dealing with mortals, too. It'll be kind of cool. It will be very fun. Well, what happens also is at the end of the thousand year reign, uh, Satan has been bound during that time. He's not roaming about like a roaring lion seeking he will devour and God then releases Satan, and I think, uh, though it doesn't say it specifically, probably all of his demons which are incarcerated with him. And uh, all the people on earth who have been born during the thousand-year reign of Christ and who don't know Christ will be swayed to attack Jerusalem, where Jesus is reigning from, and he will then instantly execute them and establish what is called the Great White Throne Judgment. You can read about it in Revelation 20. And in that White Throne Judgment, all the unbelievers from all history will be gathered around, and they will be judged for their works. The believers are not judged for their works. They escape judgment and pass to life because Jesus... Did works for them. Jesus not only obeyed for them and lived a perfect life for them. Jesus also died on the cross for them and suffered the punishment they deserve. So they get to go to heaven because of what Jesus did. But those who are judged go to hell because of what they did. And so what happens is, is the people then are assembled both uh the believers and unbelievers are all assembled at this great white throne, but the unbelievers are judged by their works. Their names are not found and written in the book of life, and they are cast into hell. Satan and demons are also judged at that time. And then at that time, there's no more evil allowed to exist in God's kingdom. There is the recreation of the... There's a new heavens and a new earth, and there is the new Jerusalem, and we go on for all eternity serving God, working, praising Him... Getting to know all the angels, getting to know all the people um, who have come to Christ and who knows what forever and ever. God blessed. Amen. So that's a little bit about what's going to come up. If you're wondering what's going to happen, that is kind of the overview from now until the eternal state. And if you want to know more, when you die, you'll find out. But uh, that's about the end of my biblical rope, so I can't tell you much more than that. All right, number three. In Genesis chapter 128, why don't we turn there? Genesis 128. And while you're turning there, there were quite a few questions about creation and the early chapters of Genesis. And I just want you to know since I'm going to start the creation versus evolution series tonight, and since I'm going to start preaching through Genesis in October, Lord willing. I am going to answer a lot of these questions that you answered that I am not answering today. But I am going to answer this one because it I, I'm not really going to get into it in detail when I go through Genesis because it's kind of a weird question. But we'll deal with it now. In Genesis 128, if you look there, the text read, God bless them, that is the man and the woman that he created God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see the little thing and fill the earth. Uh, fill the earth in the old King James version is translated replenish so here's the question is in Genesis 128 the New American Standard Bible uses the word fill and in the King James version it uses the word replenish some teach that there was an earlier cre- creation and subsequent destruction before Adam and Eve why is that? okay well here it is um, uh, first of all uh, we don't speak Elizabethan English anymore. I don't know if you noticed that, uh, but uh, we don't. And uh, because of that, um, we need to be careful if you decide to read from the King James Version because it is written in Elizabethan Old English. So we don't use some of the words that they use and some of the words that they use back then, we've redefined. So when the translators... Translated the Hebrew word into the word replenish. Uh, in Old English, it means to fill, to fill up. That's what it means. Of course, later, how we read that word, because it has the replenish, we often think of to refill, to fill again, to fill for a second time. So what happened is, is some people... Neglected to actually look at the Hebrew word, which means to fill, to fill up, or to accomplish. And instead, they went off the English and using modern day definitions, read Old English replenish as meaning to be filled a second time. They then came up with this idea that, whoa, that means the earth was full of people before Adam and Eve. God must have destroyed them and then created Adam and Eve again. This is called the pre-Adamic uh, or pre-atomism, which talks of this pre-Adamic race or a race of people before Adam. It's also called the ruin reconstruction theory. Uh, do you know why this theory got came and why they were looking in the Bible and why it became popular? Come to the creation versus evolution class tonight. And we're going to answer that question. Question number four. According to Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 11, you can turn there in your Bible. Hebrews 12, 1 through 11. You'll see a passage which is pretty familiar to a lot of us. Uh, or uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but verses one through three, it talks about fixing your eyes on Jesus and running the ra- who ran the race and and sat down at the right hand of God. And you need to consider God, verse uh, three, and then in verses four uh, on down. It talks about um, uh, you know you haven't resisted the point of shedding blood, and then it goes into say um, uh, the middle of verse five. Start quoting some Old Testament text. My son did not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines and scourges every son whom He receives. As for discipline that you endure, He deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are out if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And then he talks about we have earthly fathers who discipline us for our good as they seem best, and God disciplines us uh, so that we will be partakers in his holiness, verse ten. So anyways, it's just talking about here, and the person's asking this question about the whole discipline of God, God disciplining every believer. God disciplines every believer. How How can a believer tell if a particular difficulty in life is God's discipline or not? And the answer is you can't. Uh, God's discipline comes in many forms and they're all custom made to deal with each of us in his infinite wisdom just in the area we need. A lot of times when we think of a trial, we don't think of getting rich. We would actually think of that as a blessing. And yet money has destroyed many people. So God might discipline you by giving you a lot of money so that you cause you fall into grief knowing that, you know what, he's going to trust in this and I'm just going to teach him this lesson and that's going to it. So it may come in prosperity or poverty, sickness and health, circumstances we think are good or bad, but in the end, some painful thing happens and the question is, is that God or not? Was that discipline or not? Well, we're never told to figure out if our trials are the discipline of the Lord or not. We're just told that God disciplines every one of his children and we need to accept it. Now, let me just give you an, another example which parallels that to see, to show you uh, why it's really futile to try to figure out all the time. You know, you're, you're, you're pounding in nails and building something and you, you, you miss and you strike your thumb. And your thought is, oh no, oh no, what did I do wrong, Lord? What, I sending? What, you, what, are, what are you trying to teach me? And God's up there saying, you missed the nail. <laughs> so not everything is God's discipline that's painful. It's kind of like temptation. You know, let's say a man sees a good-looking woman walk by and he's tempted to lust after her. So let me ask you, What happened here? Well, did Satan tempt the woman to walk by the man hoping that the man would lust? Or did Satan not tempt the woman at all, but tempt the man to lust because the woman walked by? Or did the man lust of his own free will apart from any satanic intervention? Or did the woman lusting for attention of her own will apart from Satan, you know, decide to dress him modestly and walk around hoping to be lusted after by men. Well, the Bible says all of the above could be true. Satan could have been working in the woman. Satan could have been working in the man and only the woman and both the man and the woman in neither because we're sinners. And so that's not the issue. The issue isn't, you know, every time you think, well, is that Satan? Is that this? Is that that? No, the issue is, what are we supposed to do? Men aren't to lust. Women are to dress immodestly. And Satan is to be resisted by the word of God, by prayer, uh, by diverting one's eyes and fleeing in the case of sexual temptation. And when trials come in our life, we're to remember God knows what he's doing. And he has a purpose and he's going to work all things out for our good. You remember Job? Now look at Job. I mean, twice he's described... By God, as a blameless man, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. And God says, Satan, come over here. Come here. I want you to look at this guy. He's on my A-team. And you just go ahead and and, and and consider him. And that's when Satan goes, oh, pff, the only reason he's on your A-team is because you gave him all that money and all those kids and all that stuff. He says, okay, then take it away. So he does, and then Job worships the Lord. And then God says, hey, hey, Satan, come here. Have you you seen Job here? He's on my A-team of godly people. And so Satan goes, yeah, but he only does that because you give him health. He says, okay, take away his health, but don't kill him. So he does. And then he sits out in the ash heap, and then his friends accuse him of doing evil. Now, if you aren't careful, you could think God's disciplining you. This has come upon you would be like Job's friend. Every time something happens to you, what I do, Lord? And what would have happened? Nothing. You might be on God's A-team. You might be so godly that God sick Satan on you. That's what he did for Job. So you can't know. You don't need to know. What you need to know is when painful trials come, you remind yourself of who God is, what his word says, and how you are to respond to the situation. Know that mixed in all of that is God's discipline for your good pray with me. Father, we thank you for what we're able to look at this morning. And father, I know we just crushed in so much There's so many issues and so much more that could have be said on most of these issues. And yet, father, we are thankful for those who ask such great questions. So we pray that we would always be searching your word for the right answer and digging deeply into the scriptures and drawing your wisdom out of the text and looking at text carefully and listening to arguments carefully. And father, that we would as a body be protected from dangerous doctrines and movements which really do harm to the church rather than help it father we thank you for all of our segregated ministries may they continue to minister to whatever group they're ministering to in a way that gives you glory we're thankful for our integrated ministries and pray that you would continue to use them to also bless the saints We pray for our families. We pray for dads and moms who are trying to raise children in the fear and admonition of you. And Father, we pray for all of those who don't have Christian parents and families. And we pray that we would take it upon ourselves as their Christian family believers to encourage them in their walks with the Lord. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.